Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jay. And this is your weekly Overcrest News Rewind. We're glad that you're here. We hope you enjoyed my one-on-one with Magnus Walker. It seems like by the statistics, that one was something Quite everybody enjoyed. So I appreciate that. And uh, we'll do, be doing some more of those pretty soon. I've already got two interviews on the books, some which are over on the Patreon already, which mm-hmm. brings up the Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash overcrest. You can get everything early, exclusive episodes, which we just released one of those. What was that on this? This crazy dude. Tommy Fitz. Yeah, Tommy I had a Fitz. lot of feedback on that one that people like that. Yeah, so go see Tommy Fitz, uh, become a Patreon, and while you're at it, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. We would really, really appreciate that. So other than news, we've got some listener questions at the end, and Buster Conrad is Conrad Chris Buster Buster Conrad Conrad is back (laughs) so I'm uh, I've got our weekly this for you guys and we're gonna just do one of these updates if you're ready (laughs) oh man what what's the problem I I mean this isn't my fault I just can't blame me for this this isn't my fault I know so we have more Porsche Star Wars news. So dumb. <laughs> the sports car manufacturer and the U.S. production company, which is infamous for its Star Wars films, teamed up specifically to create the, a starship in support of the upcoming Star Wars film, the final episode of Who Cares? Developing mm-hmm. a space... I, I like Star Wars. I shouldn't say that. I do care. Developing a spacecraft with clear Porsche design DNA is exciting and challenging, says Michael Maurer, Vice President, Sty- Vice President Style Porsche at Porsche AG. Even though they do not seem to share many elements at first glance, no kidding. (laughs) Both worlds have a similar design philosophy. The chosen collaboration with the Star Wars design team inspires and fascinates us. I'm sure that both sides can draw major benefits from this exchange. Cool. So here's the only thing I have to say about this. I sent you a photo yesterday. Yeah, I don't think it's, I still don't think it's real. You don't think it's real? It's like a a 917 spaceship with Gulf livery. I I saw that and I was like, no, 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 it can't be real. The the worldwide appeal of the Star Wars and Porsche brands is shaped decisively by their iconic designs, says Deng Chiang, vice president and executive creative director of Lucasfilm, responsible for overseeing all designs for the Star Wars franchise. We are bringing together two worlds with this project, the exciting film design of Galaxy Far, Far Away, Mm -hmm. and the precision work that goes into developing an emotive Porsche sports car. This, those things are not related at all. No. This collaboration promises to produce an innovative design that will blend the both, best of both brands to create an exciting new starship worthy of Porsche and Star Wars. The design team will meet regularly in Stuttgart and San Francisco, California. Now, those are going to be some expensive plane tickets. Yeah, no for kidding. For designers to fly back. They should just use FaceTime. Yeah, they... Hey, what do you think, <laughs> what do you think of this new design I just put up right over here? Ugh. In addition to the model's public unveiling at the Star Wars Rise of Skywalker premiere in December, Porsche will also be showcasing their first all-electric car to Taycan at the event, which is... What this is all about is getting that car in front of the eyes of people, uh, which launched in early September, blah, blah, blah. Deliveries are soon, blah, blah, blah. So we now have a spaceship, a Porsche spaceship coming that's going to take us into the third dimension. uh, It's just dumb. I don't understand why they did this. I get the collaboration. I get it. I mean, Porsche design has done some really cool stuff. Right. Great sunglasses, great watches. um, Yeah, no, their their design firm itself is really good, but I just wish they didn't make this into some weird publicity thing. Well, yeah, but maybe the spaceship will actually be cool. 
Okay. Maybe it'll look cool. Maybe it'll be like a super kick-ass Star Wars spaceship. I, just, I think it, it, will dilutes, replace, the brand. it, it will, dilutes the brand. It will replace the X-Wing as the coolest Star Wars ship of all time. The Porsche, whatever it's called. The P-Wing. I like TIE Fighters it's better gonna than be the, It's going to be the P-Wing. <laughs> yeah. Just like P-Car, but P-Wing. Mm, no. All right. All let's right. let's move along here. So was it last week, two weeks ago, we reported that Motor Trend had released an article claiming that they put a pre-production uh, Corvette, the new C8 mid-engine Corvette on the dyno. And it did like crazy numbers. And it made 558 horsepower and 515 pound-feet of torque to the wheels, which then you can calculate would have been 650 six horsepower at the crank. So now we know, we don't know what went wrong, but we know it's wrong because well, Jason Camisa went and did some math. Right. So just to clarify the Chevy's own basically claims for what that engine put down is 495 is what is SAE certified at is 495 horsepower, which is way, way different than 565 horsepower. So yes. let's go straight to the, the brake mean effective pressure. Yeah. This so what is that? What is so, that? So I'll basically he this Jason Camisa for uh, MotorOne.com. Yep. He analyzed these numbers, saying this isn't possible. And let me tell you why. First of all, he was able to take the zero to sixty times because Motorstrand also besides using, the dyno using like uh, algorithms. Right. Or like he a, basically said if you have the dyno numbers, you can basically surmise what a zero to 60 time would be. Right. And it was way off from what it was recorded as. Right. Right. They know what the zero to 60 time is. You can do the backwards math and figure out. No, that's not not that. The other thing that's more interesting, it's the nail in the coffin, as he called it, is something called BMEP or break mean effective pressure. I've never heard of this. before. I hadn't either. Now, this is a measure of torque per unit of displacement. So you may have heard of um, like horsepower per liter. Right. right or mean what do they call it uh it's in here somewhere i'm I getting think ahead this of is myself kind of like uh this almost seems like volumetric efficiency exactly being that's what i was gonna say so basically bmep it, it basically doesn't change dramatically from one engine to another because it is there's only so volumetric much efficiency with com- with a certain compression ratio based on volume and rpm yes there's only a certain amount of power that's physically possible from the energy that exists in gasoline right that's what we're saying right unless we have a turbocharged engine which is able to force more air into the combustion chamber correct because then you're affecting volumetric efficiency right so bmep we have a few examples here like a toyota corolla has a 1.8 liter inline four that is a bmep of 12 bar so it's a pressure reading Uh, another one is the srt uh 6.4 liters. What what is crazy for me is that one of the top ones on his little list that he has here is the Toyota Camry 3.5 liter V6, which has 13.2, 13.2, which is, I mean, wow. Good job, Toyota. Good for you. Right. Uh, And so the uh, Ferrari 812 super fast 6.5 liter V12 is actually the highest rated BMEP of any car, any any, naturally aspirated vehicle at 13.9. So that basically gives you the range. They're all right between 12 and 13 for really good, efficient engines. And we know the Corvette C8 6.2 liter V8 is supposed to have 13 bar. Right. Of the BMEP. So correct. Far less than the Ferrari motor. Yeah. And so what actually, if you do the math and figure out what 
the uh, the 656 horsepower would have been in What's BMWP. That? It's like 17 or 17. 17.7, which so, is just, it's not within the realm of possibility. So it's we don't know what happened on the dyno. We possible. don't know, but it's not it's possible wrong. that that. Yeah. So we're, they're not, I thought it was like some sort of crazy clever marketing by Corvette, like massively underrating their motor and then just putting out these. By 150 Fiat, horsepower. And then they go and they put it, well. I guess that would make them look stupid. Yes, it would. Yeah, it wouldn't make them. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe like 30, 40 horsepower or yeah, 20 horsepower. I, I guess. Be it's like, yeah, we're be... being conservative here. But no, it's just, it, it was wrong. Okay, so one of the things that is always, um, I hang out at a Volkswagen shop every week, mm-hmm. and my buddy Chad runs the shop, and I'm always wondering how these shops are going to deal with the new, uh, the, all the new stuff that's coming down, all the new technology, all the safety okay. stuff that's going to be coming along. Um, and I'm wondering how local independent shops are going to repair all these new cars. So the rapid rise of crash avoidance technology has set car makers and repair shops on course for collision that could determine who oh, controls. That the- was a pun. It was? Where did I do a pun? Uh, they're on a collision. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, I didn't write this. I this know. is uh, who wrote this. <laughs> this is Reuters. Reuters. Okay. Reuters. Um, yep. The uh, a crash course <laughs> that could determine who controls the 800 billion auto uh, aftermarket in the digital age. Um, now, what I think is important here is uh, many um, manufacturers really want their dealers to be the ones doing service. Right. Almost half of the of the money that they make in profit, I think it's 45%. It's all from service, service. and parts. Yep. So given the unprecedented sophistication of the systems, which include lane keeping assistance, automatic braking and blind spot detection, many automakers say only parts and repairs from their authorized dealers can ensure safety. Mm -hmm. This has drawn fire from the independent repair shops and suppliers that are currently dominating the aftermarket. They say they can produce parts and fix the cars at a fraction of the cost, but drivers are being locked out, which is true. You always are going to pay less going to the independent shop than paying dealer prices. Sure. Because you've got... Good, better, best, right? So if you want brake pads, you've got good, better, best. Right. When you go to the dealer, you probably have better or, you know. I, it's probably better. just one option. This is OEM replacement. It's OEM, but it's kind of in that neighborhood of upper tier, like mid-level. Yeah. You know, th- it's the OEM. Right. Like if you get brake pads, it's the original pads that were put on the car yeah. when the thing was brand new. You're not getting some, you know, <laughs> you know, just like these pads that are supposed to last 150,000 miles and they sound like a banshee every time yeah. you come up to a light. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> companies are saying the advanced dive driver systems can only be repaired at the dealer and doing others doing otherwise voids warranties. Yeah, not surprised. So, However, why would you go to an independent shop if you're still under warranty? Uh, well, you have the right to do so. And I think some okay. of the things like some of the things are different, right? Some you have a bumper to bumper warranty for this, right. but the engine is only this. Like there's okay. different types of breadths of warranties. But do they have a point is my question. Because if you have like, a, yeah, because these I'm going to get into it a little bit, but some of these machines to do the calibration and everything like that cost like a hundred thousand dollars because these like the adaptive uh, cruise control and the automatic I braking it all needs and the to be lane calibrated. Changing, all those cameras and everything have to be calibrated to be exactly right. And it takes really special tools. The aftermarket dispute is escalating in the United States. Independent repair shops and parts makers have asked the FTC uh, the government agency responsible for consumer protection uh, to intervene. They want car makers to be prohibited from making warranties conditional on other ADAS advanced driving assistance systems sure. uh, parts, bringing the new tech in line with rules on traditional auto equipment. Some automakers warn cheaper parts could prevent safety risks. They may say sensors have to be calibrated, a costly process requiring space, level ground, specific lighting, and manufacturer made scanning tools to access software. 
I get both sides of this. I do. Um, without using manufacturer-made scanning tools, repair shops are unable to interpret and fix 20 to 30% of ADS diagnostic trouble codes, meaning they have to send cars to dealerships, according to the 11 shop owners. I'm guessing those are the ones contacting the FTC. Um, the FTC, which is still soliciting industry views and public comments on the repair issue, declined to comment. Wow. So the $100,000 figure I said is not disputed by the auto industry either. This stuff is really that expensive. Wow. But I, this is just the way it is, right? Yeah. I mean, who's going to be hold, held liable if you go to a shop? But that's just it. You don't want the cheapest whatever sensor replacing your avoidance camera and one that, yeah, you know. Do. People absolutely do. They absolutely are going to go okay, to an People shop. do want it. But I, as the other car on the road next to this person, don't want some not OEM solution there because what if it accidentally slams on it breaks as we know they have done in the past, right? So like, are you okay with the FTC going, sorry guys, this stuff is too important. It's only can be done by the dealer and you're basically, I don't know at some point that's, it really doesn't gonna, seem right, it's but you really get hurt it. The independent shop and millions of jobs are at stake when it comes to that kind of stuff. For sure. I, I don't know what the answer is. It's a tough one. So we'll see, you know, of also all the other things that these new cars have that dealers don't, have anything like you have a vagcom for volkswagen cars where you plug it in and you scan right it. that is not useful anymore unless you have an older car some of the new stuff that's coming is so ridiculously well, it's all proprietary too well it's not necessarily proprietary because you can still get the scan tools from volkswagen okay but they're like really really expensive oh, really? They're real, well it's all fault finding stuff now yeah. it's not well this sensor is bad this is that it's you tell the computer what the car is doing mm-hmm. and then it walks you through a like if then you know, like thing, is it doing this? Yes. Is it doing that? No. And it's like this fault finding mission. You don't have to be a, a mechanic anymore. You're just a technician that just kind of reads the stuff. Okay. So this is kind of the biggest story of the day. So the new rules and regulations for um, Formula One have been released for the 2021 season. Okay. And it is huge amount of changes. This is a big deal. Okay. You're not super into F1. I'm not. But I think that some of this stuff could make people that aren't in f1 get in more interested it's going to be i feel like this has it has to make things more competitive well it's just more interesting well it's interesting for sure but it's it's the competition that's kind of been waning lately right i mean lewis hamilton you know swings his nuts across the finish line every year is the winner. <laughs> Having spent more than two years analyzing the current state of competition in Formula One, the series, along with its governing body, the FIA, has announced sweeping changes to its regulations that will take effect in the 2021 season. We deeply respect the DNA of Formula One, which is a combination of great sporting competition, uniquely talented and courageous drivers, dedicated teams. I'm just going to get to what they did because who cares? Right. Um, so what's up? Here's, um, here's what they're going to do. The, the, on the car. So there's a couple different things that they're going to do. On the car, they're going to have lower profile tires on 18-inch wheels. Okay. So currently they have 13-inch wheels. They're that small. They're that small. So they have a 13-inch wheel with big-ass tires. Massive tires. So just think about that. What's that going to do? That's a big do? change. That, the tires right now are part of the suspension. Yeah, Seriously, good point. I mean, you can compress the tire. You can do a lot yeah. with uh, tire pressure changes. You know, you can do different things. I'm sure they kind of know where the sweet spot is, and they're not like, swinging the, the air pressure all over the place but it is still part of the car that can be adjusted you start putting a you know a low profile tire on things i think that's going to change things a little bit it should even the playing field right. probably the, the tires will also get wheel wake control devices to direct airflow also a wing tip uh front wing that appears deeper and more substantial than the 2019's car uh, mm-hmm. front arrow element. So basically what is, when you look out a plane and you look out the little port side window yeah. and you see the little winglet come up on the yes. edge of the wing, 
that's what they look like. Yeah, and, they're and that's, kinda, that's, and they're that's kind to prevent of turbulence on the end of the wing. It actually right. reduces drag. They're right. very interesting. Um, and we want to reduce drag. We want less arrow, in my opinion, on these cars. Um, they also appear to have tips that look like, ah, uh, we've said already. All right, so more robust rear wing, mm-hmm. underbody tunnels, and a simplified suspension geometry. I couldn't find what that actually means. I mean, I might, mm. I maybe I'll have to get the real rule book and pretend I'm smart enough to understand um, and go from there. So the simplified aerodynamics are intended to clean up the airflow around the track, mitigating the effects of dirty air on the competitive environment and theoretically making overtaking maneuvers easier. Oh, I suppose because it's if you you're lose. in the lead, you have such an advantage because now you have clean air that you're basically using your arrow on. Exactly. And, and it's all about arrow. Yeah, it is F1. right now. It's all about arrow because you lose 40 to 50 percent of your downforce when you're behind a car because the, wow. the, the air is so dirty. Yep. The new cars are only going to lose about 10 percent. Hmm. So that's really going to make because you you come up behind somebody and you're in a turn flat out. If you have 40 to 50 percent less downforce than the you person go in front slower. of you, you're going to have to go slower. Um, the team's time in the wind tunnels also be set to be reduced even further for 2021. So it will become harder for one team to simply outdevelop the competition and streak ahead. Sure. Teams will also get real less real world testing time than they currently do, which will limit the engineers opportunities to iterate and refine components over the course of the season. Changes during a race weekend will also be limited. Some parts are going to be standardized, and restrictions will be added for replacement of parts like brake pads. These changes, along with the new cost cap, are intended to balance the field and shift the focus from the cars to the drivers. Cost cap. This is the big one. Yeah, have they had this before? This has never existed before. Really? So... 2021 will mark the first Formula One season where financial restrictions are part of the rules. Wow. The budget cap of $175 million per team per year based on a 21 race calendar (laughs) will be closely policed. And while that budget doesn't include marketing costs, the wages of figures like drivers, team principals, and other senior personnel, it will still represent a significant new ceiling for some of the bigger teams on the grid to work to. Um, I mean, this is going to take time, right? Everybody's kind of done a ton of research on the cars right now. Okay. So kind of, you're going to have to wait for this to kind of take over and the research to kind of fade away. You know, right now these teams are spending, some teams are spending way less, some teams are spending way more. Right. So there's guys that are kind of ahead of the curve. So we're just going to have to wait for that to plateau out a little bit. But so I wanted to give you a perspective of some team budgets in 2018. Right, because $175 million crazy, is right? ridiculous. Ferrari spent $410 million. Wow. Mercedes spent $400 million, and Red Bull spent $310 million, whereas a team like Haas Racing yeah. only spent one hundred and thirty. million. Oh so just think of the 200, what is it, $270 million engineering and research gap, gap. that Ferrari wow. has and Mercedes have over someone like Haas Racing. So That's, yeah, it over will be time, huge. If they're able, so they're actually hiring an agency to deal with this. So there's going to be an auditing agency. Yeah, there would have to be. be. Um, so there's some consequences for this. There okay. are three categories of potential breaches. The first is a procedural breach, such as a team submitting their accounts late or inaccurately. Mm-hmm. The second is a minor overspend breach when a team's report shows they have exceeded the cost cap by less than five percent, or the cop cost cap administration finds they have exceeded that percentage. The third is a material overspend breach where team submission of their accounts or an investigation by the panel shows they have exceeded by 5%. Once a breach has been identified, three forms of penalty are possible. Okay. The first is a financial penalty. Basically they get fined. Mm-hmm. The fine will be determined on a case by case basis. The second is a minor sporting penalty, which could be a combination of reprimand, uh, deduction of constructors or driver points, a ban for a certain number of races, limitations on testing, all kinds of different things. Um, the third is a material sporting penalty, which is the most serious. It can involve, involve all of the above plus 
and an exclusion from the world championship. So they're taking this very seriously. So the car completely redone. Yep. The finances completely redone. And yeah, the the actual, I guess, what it happens if you were to breach these is a big deal. Yeah. So I'm really, really interested to see where things go. I've I've been waiting for some sort of big change to happen because there haven't been any big changes. You know, I think that there's probably a little bit of um, I don't think the right word is nepotism, but it's almost like, you know, Mercedes and Ferrari are kind of just the big dogs and they're the ones with all the money and they're kind of maybe pulling some strings behind closed doors. This really takes that away from them. If they're saying, nope, sorry, you've got to spend. I would love to see this be an underdog story now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Some of those smaller teams. Sorry, you need to spend $230 million less. Yeah, think about that. Money huge. Money equals results in Formula One. That is clear and obvious. Wow, so that'll be that'll goes. be cool. All right, what uh, else? We our got? next story is less exciting. The manual is truly dead, or as Chris put it, at least making burbling, sucking wound sounds. <laughs> <laughs> In the third quarter of 2019, it seems just 1.1 percent of buyers opted for a manual, while nearly two percent are seeking EVs. Says JD Power numbers. Yeah, so that's... more people are buying electric vehicles than they are manuals, which Twice I guess as many isn't surprising twice as twice many. as many yeah. yeah wow quote manual transmissions have been on a nearly century-long decline century-long 100 <laughs> come on century-long decline <laughs> well everything had a man 100 of cars had manual transmissions when we started okay right? or in 1919 <laughs> i think the manual transmission was on an incline as far as sales figures go because cars were just getting started well, not till like what the 40s did an the automatic come out. Yeah, yeah, that's so well. come on. Come on, J.D. Powered Associates. <laughs> All right. So a century long decline. While no rational person thinks the trend will ever reverse. It was interesting to note that only Can this I be an year, irrational person and hope for it. Yes, okay? there you go. After nearly a decade in the market, Eve Evs Evs. No, we're not saying Evs. <laughs> EVs were able to surpass last century's Dying technology. I know it, the language is wow. so brutal. Says Tyson Jomini, vice president, PIN consulting of the data and analytics division at JD Power. What do you think Associates. he drives? What do you think? Oh, Chris, Tyson he doesn't. Jomini. He doesn't. No, drive. he drives a Tesla. That guy definitely drives or Prius. Yeah, some some self hating car. All in all, it really <laughs> all in all, it really wasn't a great year for the manual transmission. Jomini attributes the downturn to the quote discontinuation of many compact and subcompact stands where manuals were purchased primarily as a lower cost to entry to a new vehicle, adding that brands like Mazda, Jeep, and Subaru still offer manuals, but mostly informants or niche products. Okay, so no kidding, it's the fact that they don't offer them anymore. Because the cars that they were in don't exist. Well, it's a catch-22. People weren't buying them, so it doesn't make sense to retool an entire new you know, model in order to accept a manual transmission as opposed to just the automatic. So then they can't offer it, and if they're not offering it, then people aren't buying it, and it's this vicious cycle. Well, yeah, well, these are the cars that had it to begin with, the cheap cars. You know, you wanted a manual transmission. You, maybe you got power windows, and you had a radio that didn't even have a CD player. Now that maybe it has Bluetooth. You know, these are all cars that had the manual transmission. Right. Those cars don't exist. Yeah. They're gone. There's no Fiesta. There's no Focus. There's no, right. you know, all these cars are are basically dead. And having a manual and a crossover, even no. for me, that doesn't even make sense. No, it doesn't at all. So, um, all right. So, <laughs> can't believe I'm going to say this. This yeah. is kind of this is kind of uh, tongue in cheek a little bit. I want a Miata. Yeah. And I yeah. only I don't actually want a Miata, but I I find it difficult 
to be blind to the fact that Mazda is doing everything they can to keep a driver's car on the market. Yes. And Hyundai is too. And I find it so strange that you have someone like uh, Mazda and you have Hyundai and you have these, um, you know, Eastern countries that are doing this kind of stuff. Yeah. But the Germans are just blowing it. Just, I mean, other than Porsche, which we'll talk about later, everybody's blowing it. Yeah. No. Audi doesn't offer no manual in an M5. No. No manual in any Audis. Uh, most Volkswagens, I guess you could probably still get a manual and a Golf, but we don't even get a Golf anymore. Right. So it's just, it seems like everything, the companies that I used to love are just nope. ki- giving up and just rolling over. But why Why is a Miata so okay. cool? So you remember when we talked about the Mazda restoration program in yes. Japan and I said, well, we don't really know if any of that kind of stuff is coming here. Yeah. The good news was that owners of Miatas that look like they've been thoroughly enjoyed for decades could get their convertibles returned to as new condition in Japan. The bad news is that the program was for uh, was a trial for quality verification only open to Japanese market. Right. At the time, Mazda Japan said it was considering a resupply of parts that became discontinued for the first gen NA series produced from 89 to 97. Wow, that's a while. In February this year, the carmaker's then CEO revealed our fans can be reassured that additional parts identified by owners and specialty shops will become available by June of this year. The time has come. Well, it's it's November. The time has come, Mazda North America announcing a reproduction parts program for the first gen Miatas with a catalog of more than 1,100 new and legacy components. Awesome. So you can now take your NA Miata, go to the dealer and order parts for it. Correct. The automaker says it spoke to Miata clubs and shops to determine which parts were needed most. Among this first salvo will be a fabric soft top using the same rear screen material from the NA series, roller mechanism for the side windows, brake calipers, and a set of aluminum Enki wheels in the original design that are lighter and boast a better finish. That doesn't seem like a priority. Perhaps even better are the Akane OEM parts that can be desperately hard to source for area-appropriate restorations like grommets, bolts, shocks, and the Roadster badge that's an eBay go-to. Each piece has been redeveloped to take advantage of modern materials and build techniques while maintaining the look of the period correct original. So basically they're making a modern. Yeah. So the parts list PDF runs 42 pages long. Awesome. We'll, we'll link to this in the, in the show notes, but rad. I mean, exactly. How do you not like, not like this a little bit? I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, so I want to skip the next story to go to this one just because it's still Mazda. And this is kind of not Mazda really, 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 really wants to make a rotary sports car. Which is awesome. But, I would love that. Uh, Mazda desperately wants to build another rotary engine sports car, and it seems extremely likely that it is even designed and developed one. But senior company executives fear that such a vehicle might soon be, quote, socially unacceptable. And they speak about being in a, quote, race against time to get it done <sighs> before then. So basically... Mazda's saying, yes, we want to buy or build this car. It's going to be awesome. An old throwback rotary sports car like the RX-7, but the market would make it socially unacceptable because they basically be saying- there's too many people sitting on their porch waving at cars that make noise when they drive by. That's basically what it comes down to. We're not there yet, are we? Uh, <laughs> really? The Toyota Supra sales are not good. They're selling Is for- Is that why? No, but they're selling for undervalue. They're under market price. I don't yeah, know because that's a not a great car. No, it's not. But if you look at what happened with the Kia Stinger, that didn't really take off either. That's because that was too expensive of a car. You can come up with whatever reason you want, <laughs> but all of these cars that are supposed to be like cool drivers, are, they're not catching on. 
They're not taking. So you're basically saying that the market's not there for this stuff anymore because people are turning their backs on car enthusiasm. Mustangs are still selling well. No, they're not. They're actually repurposing the Mustang factory for other reasons because they're not making enough Mustangs. Sorry, Jake. It's true. I read it today. I, I didn't like put this. it in the news story, but um, ask uh, ask senior managing executive officer Ichiro Hirose if he'd like to see Mazda use its unique rotary technology for something more exciting than a range extending hybrid, <laughs> which we talked about the other yeah. day. Um, and his face lights up and he nods vigorously. <laughs> it is still our dream, he said. Mazda chief designer Ikuo Maeda, a man who races MX-5s in his spare time and loves sports cars in general, goes just a tiny step further. We never give up on that dream, he said, smiling. We've been doing this new stuff for a long time. Right. Like a year, two years, whatever it is. I haven't read any manufacturers say things like this about cars that are driver's cars. True. Or what they want to do or what they dream of doing. They all dream of being mobility providers. <laughs> and how can we bridge the gap from this stupid sports car that's, you know, polluting the environment, but we have to make because it's our halo car or it's our, you know, M for marketing car. We have to make right. this M for marketing car because we have to be able to get to the car where, you know, we can do mobility provider and make millions or trillions of dollars, as is, as is said, that everybody's going to make. That's what everybody's using the cars for now is a bridge to get to where they need to be for all the money that they've spent investing in doing electric cars. That's all the cars that exist right now is to pay off that ledger balance of everything that they invested tell me i'm wrong i get it yeah i just, I just don't i just don't feel the enthusiasm from the companies <laughs> when i hear them speak well i'm not saying the cars that they're making are necessarily bad i'm just saying that this is unique right he also says i don't know if we are having an rx8 replacement we have to see what society thinks of that really? and what the environment is like in terms of accepting the idea of a sports car he said, referring to the idea that in the emissions-focused world, burning fuel purely for fun rather than transport may increasingly be seen as irresponsible. I understand that the clock is ticking and that the environment constantly changes, and we have to see if the current and future environment would be able to accept a sports car with open arms, he said. The answer to that is no. I don't think they will. Really? You don't think they're blowing it out of proportion here? Not at the price range that they're going to try and sell cars at. I think that sports cars in general fun sports cars that are more basic are starting to be sold for cheaper. And I think right. if they bring out an RX-8, it's going to be expensive. Mm. We understand that we are racing against time, but if the notion of driving a sports car causes people to think negatively about the pressure that is being put on the global environment, if having a sports car itself is seen as a negative thing, then we don't want that. Surely then Mazda could consider some sort of hybridized sports car or even an EV one. I think we need to consider different solutions. We need to explore various pathways to actually realize it because what is important is to offer what's that sports car into the market. There are still many fans for sports cars. I think it's really about understanding the determination and hope of these sports car fans. Anytime you say that if a, a bunch of fans have hope, you know you're in trouble. Yeah, they've got, they've got so much hope. They've got so much hope. We want to bring something to them. So, guys, it's up to us. But realistically, we are screwed. We're never going to see it. You're never going to see a rotary sports car. It's not going to happen. Don't get excited. But It'd hey, be sweet if they put it in the next gen Miata. Yeah. That's what they've always like. People have always said the RX-7 13B or whatever rotary should have been in the MX-5 in the Miata. So I drove, and I forgot to talk about this. I drove Ryan, who's one of our listeners. He's a truck driver. Yep. He brought his newer Miata over for yep, me to drive. It's the N. D 
I'm not sure, but it's the basically it was the club version. So it had, you know, different suspension. I think it has Bilstein suspension, limited yep. slip. You did talk about uh, this briefly because everyone told you that's not. Well, I talked about original. it on social. Yeah. Oh, okay. So everybody said that's not a real Miata. So I still apparently have not driven a real Miata. <laughs> I re- so there's two things about that car. I like the way it drove. Mm-hmm. I hated how the traction control system was late. And I oh. didn't want to turn it off because um, it's not my car. So I didn't yeah. want to turn off the traction control. He said I could, but I was like, eh. Like I would start to get the car sideways. Yeah. And the traction control would come in really late and like catch me and like throw the balance of the car off. Right. Which really bothered me. But I, I, maybe I should have just turned it off. I just didn't feel right doing it. Well, regardless, an early car. So what, here, here, one thing. Um, I really like the way. So I'm used to driving in anger. I drive my 911. Yep. Which has the tires are a part of the suspension. You can feel, you can feel the whole suspension load up in the front corner of the car when you're going sure. around a corner. You can feel the weight come off the rear and like load up. With the Miata, it was really progressive and predictable. Every single time was exactly the same. Yep. And I felt like the I was being nudged by the seat bolsters. I could feel like the car was just nudging my shoulder, like, "Oh yeah, this is what's happening." You can. F- it was. It was a really <laughs> enjoyable experience. I like driving the car. Um, I also really like that all the knobs and buttons wasn't overly complicated. It yeah. was still a pretty basic car. It had knobs for climate control, and you know, it had a tachometer and oil pressure, whatever, all the things that you want, or right nothing there. that you don't want. Right. And I really, really like that as well. Did not like the e-brake placement. Where's that? It's on the other side of the shifter. Oh. But then I imagine if you were going to go from your seat to grab the shifter, it would be in the way. You know, it would yeah. you'd, you'd hit it with your hand. I didn't really like that. Um, the clutch was terrible. Oh, really? I really, really just, there was no feel to the clutch whatsoever. Mm. None. It was like pushing my kid on a swing. It just went out and it came back. <laughs> I mean, it was really, really, there was not much to it. It wasn't exciting at all. I did not like the clutch. Steering feel was really great. Like I yep. said, it really, what I was doing with the steering wheel was exactly what I felt on my shoulder in the car as it was pushing against me. Sure. Got really good communication from the car. So uh, the, the one highlight that Miatas this are always my, renowned for. This is like the first car review we've ever done. I was thinking podcast. that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but what they're renowned for is the shifting feel. The shifting feel was nothing that really... No, I liked or did not like because oh. I was too distracted by the terrible clutch, mm. which I really did. It was way too light. It was way mm. too light. Well, I'm guessing it's a hydraulic clutch. Right. You know, I, I like a cable clutch. I like feeling it tension, right. the spring. I like a spring tension in my clutch. And that's just all old car stuff is having a spring tension. To right. It. Um, but overall, I really like the car. I can't imagine having less horsepower than that <laughs> because it still was like your wide. Another thing, the engine. So it revs out to 7,200 RPMs, I sure, think. Sure, yeah. Um, maybe a little bit more. I don't, And I think it was 7,200 because I remember it being similar to my, my 911. But it seemed like once you get past six, it's just making noise. It just falls off, yeah. It didn't really necessarily fall off, but it wasn't really picking up. I feel like the cam was set too low. And I mean, it had power down by five. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, why are we revving out this high if there's nothing there? We don't why need don't we to? Well, if that's the way that the <laughs> if they've got the gearbox designed oh. with the with the where the red line of the tack yeah. is, people are gonna want to drive it that way, but all it did is make noise. They need to put a different cam on the car, or you need to put your own cam on the car and bring the power band up to the place where the engine likes to rev. Yeah. I just I I did not like that at all either. Was, Should we get an NA Miata project car? I want to make an NA. I want to strip the whole body off and put an electric motor in it. This is what I would like to do. Why? Because I'm fascinated by the electric stuff right now. I want to know how it works. I want to understand. I want to understand the controllers and the motors and everything. I love learning. Do that in a hatchback then. 
Why? Not because Miata, it's about the balance and it's a driver's car. And <laughs> so I, why just, can't you engineer it to be balanced how you want to be, have it be balanced? <sighs> be heavy with all those batteries. Yes, it would. It would definitely be heavy. Well, it depends on what kind of range you're going for. So, Jake. Yes. You like Maseratis. Yeah, I kind of like them. Yeah, so Alfa Romeo, Maserati, and Fiat need help. Uh -oh. That is not new. The late Sergio Marchion, when he was CEO of FCA Fiat Chrysler, um, lamented these brands were not performing close to the lofty goals he had set for them. Okay. His successor, Mike Manley, made similar noises today and called with investors to discuss third quarter earnings. The difference is this conference call comes a day after FCA and PSA, which is Peugeot, mm -hmm. announced plans to merge. And did you know they merged? Fiat, I, I saw a headline merge. about this. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about it in a little bit. You, we might run a little bit long on this one. I hope you guys are okay with that. And the brands most likely to be impacted are Alfa Romeo, Maserati, and Fiat. Okay. The entire product portfolio will be renewed by 2023, 20, and electrification will now be a hallmark of the brand. A Ghibli hybrid starts the motor running next year, followed by the first new addition to the lineup, the Alfieri sports car due in 2020. The coupe will be followed by a convertible just for Jake in 2021. <laughs> the Alfieri will be available as a plug-in hybrid or full battery electric. That mm. will be the pivot point for Maserati to enter the electric world. From then on, all future Maseratis will have a full battery electric option. So basically you're seeing the last naturally aspirated Ferrari powered Maserati. Which is why I liked them. So I just wanted you to not like them anymore. That's, I don't. Um, that's it. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Chrysler is going to merge with Peugeot. As you um, mentioned. Fiat okay. Chrysler and Peugeot uh, PSA plan to join forces in a 50-50 share merger to create the world's fourth largest automaker. Now, Peugeot's stock went down mm -hmm. and Fiat's went up, which signals that Fiat is the one that's basically taking control. Sure. Just from what I read, that's what mar okay. the market says is that Fiat is seen as kind of the overtaker. That makes sense. On this, which there, I think. So is this going to be? I can let you finish, but is this going to be a trend now, where for whatever change in the market we're seeing, all these companies now have to basically become conglomerates well, to survive? Fiat is or Chrysler has been tr try to do this stuff all the time. They try to do it with Daimler with. Mercedes. Right. I don't know. It seems like Fiat Chrysler is always trying to make friends with others. I don't really know what they're up to. <laughs> the company said on Thursday they aim to reach a binding deal in the coming weeks to create a $50 billion group with listings in Paris, wow. Milan, and New York. Um, FCA would get access to PSA's more modern vehicle platforms, helping it to meet tough new emissions rules, blah, blah, blah. So I was actually wondering um, when we are getting some cool cars from France. We heard this spring that Peugeot was going to sell cars here by 2026. Maybe that'll get accelerated. They're going to sell Opals too. Um, but I seriously doubt we're going to get the 108, 208, or 308, which are all the hatchbacks. Right. 308 is like the GTI. Well, yeah. 208 is like a Polo or a Lupo. They're not making cars is, here anyway, so why would they import some? Yeah, we'll probably get some dumb crossovers. Um, I think a lot of this is going to be the French stuff that you see come over. Mm -hmm. You know, European stuff is always seen as, oh, especially the French stuff is like, oh, yes, oh. I think you're going to see um, car mobility providing stuff from the French brands. When it comes over, it's going to be mobility provider based stuff in, you know, 2026, 2027. Sad, sadly. Okay. Okay. So next story, Trump is backing off the fuel efficiency freeze for a new program. Now, you know that he had been freaking out about the EPA saying we're not going to do anything anymore. Right. Blah, 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 blah. The Trump administration is officially backing away from a plan to freeze tailpipe emission targets for new vehicles through 2025, say people familiar with the process. The administration is all considering a 1.5% annual increase in fleet-wide fuel efficiency using an industry measure that takes both gas mileage and emissions reductions into account. 
The target moves moves the number closer to the Obama-era rules calling for 5% gains, but still provides automakers with significant relief and would allow cars to emit more pollution. (laughs) President Trump has been trying for years to soften a set of stringent targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions first agreed to in 2012 by the Obama administration. California and much of the automobile industry that moved to 1.5% comes after intense industry lobbying, which opposed the Trump administration's original plan to freeze targets at 2019 levels around 37 miles per gallon. Jesus. Here's the thing. They've already invested all of this money in the future of whatever it is that they're doing. So it makes you wonder, like, why wouldn't they want this? Why wouldn't they want to make not have to meet these emission requirements? Chrysler just paid a huge fine. We talked about that the other week. Right. The reason is, is why lobby to freeze it when you've already invested billions of dollars to move on, move on from combustion? Obviously. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, if all of a sudden they say, you know what? We don't care about emission standards anymore. It's going to be really cheap for people to just say, OK, we're going all in yeah, back on they gas. They want the financial squeeze to continue, basically, and the emission squeeze to continue because they they've already invested. They're everything. so invested in all of this that they just want. I mean, it's getting more and more expensive to produce these fuel efficient cars. It's. They had to do crazy turbo stuff and crazy yeah, it's you know, diminishing direct returns injection. at this yeah, point. Yeah, you can't. I was reading somewhere that we've finally reached. It's not going to get any better for combustion engines. We have reached the pinnacle of efficiency and power for yeah. combustion engines. Um, the administration initially justified freezing the standards by arguing any emissions improvements would raise the prices of new cars. And I think that's probably true because you've yeah. seen cars are now an average of thirty-four thousand dollars, which seems for crazy a new car. to me. I remember even when you had um, the Mark V Golf. Yeah, when you that could came out, get it for like 13. 13. 13 that grand, was the you ad. Yep. Or, or that was the, the Jetta too. Yep. It was like a crank window, um, four cylinder, eight valve ABA, which is the engine that's out of a Mark III, <laughs> right. basically. Yeah. You could that's get right. That in they the car. put it in that. Oh, they wow. put it in there just so they could market that car. Yeah. But the thing is, is nobody wants anything like that anymore, right? And nobody wants. I don't I want it. I don't want it. No. I want other people to want it because yeah. I would like the idea of that car existing. Um, according to analysis, people would consequently keep their older cars on the road longer, leading to increased deaths and injuries from crashes. Anyway, so they're just going to move on. I don't think this will work. Um, I think that the lobby, the car lobby will fight this hard because they've already invested. Well, no, good, they good, just said they a agreed to a 1.5% increase. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> I don't think it's for sure. They're oh. considering requiring a 1.5 annual increase. Um, they'll be expected to possibly be announced at year's end. We'll um, we'll see how I gotcha. we'll see how there it goes. We go. All right. So Mercedes is developing level. F- I don't care about this story. Nope. Nope. Goodbye. How about this one? A 1970 Dodge Charger was destroyed by its owner, who was sick of lowball offers. I I will say what I think of this after you read it. Okay. So let me just read it here. Uh. A man named Daniel Gagliardi bought a rusted out 1970 Dodge Charger project car with an intent to flip it. Uh, contacted by the drive, Gagliardi said he bought the car for 4200 bucks and listed it for 8500 Quote, it was a complete car, he said, not missing a single thing inside out, underneath, under the hood, wasn't missing a damn thing. Had fender tags, VIN tags, clean title, and instead of negotiating with serious buyers, Gagliardi told the outlet in a stream of jokers jerked him around for six months. The time wasting took a toll, and after 180 days of no shows, thousands of no showers, and a whole bunch of flakers who didn't have a decency to bring a decent offer of cash, he decided to teach them all a lesson. So he destroyed the car, filmed the entire destruction. So you look at the film. He's got a basically a front end loader, and, yep. he's, and he just crushes just the thing, smashes it. it over and over again. 
Yeah. Uh, the thing was a toilet. Let's be honest. The thing was pretty rusty, but it sounds like it was a running complete car. It was, but why didn't he just lower the price? Or to, to what? I mean, it sounds like the price based on the market was maybe it's a little bit high, like by like a thousand or two dollars. If you don't sell it, you lower the price. That's how this works. There is a huge problem with lowballing jerks. I know on the internet right now. And I don't know that I would do this with a car, but I've sold some cheaper things online where people are just like, yeah, man, can I trade you like uh, a bag of dog whistles or some of my kids Legos for this? Yeah. And you're just like, what are you talking about? I don't want any of that crap. Oh, can I, can I make payments on it? I know it's only a $4,000 car, but I really, really (laughs) promise that I'll be able to pay you. Uh, I'll even bring you some beer the first time with the first check. I've had people say that. It's like, no, I would rather just, destroy the item and show them that I destroyed it and watch their eyes just fill up with tears. <laughs> it was, it's worth the loss to, to just screw those people over. Cause I'm so tired of the Facebook Craigslist lowballer people. Yeah. They are brutal. And if this guy has been dealing with this for six months and he finally lost his temper, I get it. I definitely get it. But I just, it seems a little bit of a waste. Oh, 100%. Because it seems like there was still some good parts oh, yeah. on the car. All right, what do we got next? All right, so next up, Steve Wozniak from Apple. He's one of the founders of Apple. Yes, yeah. the founder of Apple along smart with Steve guy. Jobs. Apparently a really smart guy. He says you. autonomous cars simply aren't happening. Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak has officially given up on autonomous vehicles despite previously being a major proponent of their advancement. Quote, I stepped back on this idea of level five. So he's talking about level five autonomy, which is basically you do nothing. nothing. There is no steering wheel in the car. He says, I've really given up. Uh, He said this at last week's J.D. Power Auto Revolution Conference in Las Vegas. Quote, I don't even know if that will happen in my lifetime. To be fair, he's 69. So he's thinking 10 12 years. Okay. Yeah, give him 15. All right, let's give him 15. Quote, what we've done is we've misled the public into thinking this car is going to be like a human brain and be able to really figure out new things and say, hey, here's something I hadn't seen before, but I know what's going on here, and here's how I should handle it. Wozniak explained, a human can do that. Okay, here's the thing. I was watching, um, and I recommend everybody do this, is on Nova right now, there mm-hmm. is a, a, a documentary about self-driving cars right and one of the statistics that they had and i had this written down but i deleted it so i'll probably i'll try and pull it off the top of my head is you can drive the uh, there's a hundred million miles driven human driving right for one death that equates to you driving for three well over 300 years driving 24 hours a day every day before it's likely that you're 100 going to die wow so i was going to ask you how often does your computer crash? Do you get a, <laughs> right. you get a spinny ball on it? Right? Yeah, yeah. Humans are actually really, really good at yes. driving. And I was watching some of the, you know, the way the LIDAR works and you were seeing how they identify people. Okay. The computer of the car identifies people. Yeah. And you watch a guy walk behind a mailbox mm-hmm. and he's gone. You can't, the car goes, whoop, that person just disappeared. <laughs> you and I can recognize the top of someone's head as a human being or just logically be like, Oh, people don't just disappear. It's logic and reason. That is something that will be really, really, really difficult yeah. for a computer to understand. Basically we're talking about artificial intelligence that's yeah. able to learn. Okay. So you can say we can look at any cat mm-hmm. and know that it's a cat, even mm-hmm. though there's a million different variables of cats, cats with no hair, fat cats, skinny yes. cats, orange cats, gray cats, you know, 
dead cats alive cats. You know, there's all <laughs> kinds of different cats. But if you show a computer one cat and say this is a cat, you can't show them another cat. They won't get it until they learn. So it, you're talking about machine learning. And Correct. this is really ironic because I was at a conference for my day job last week. And there was a whole presentation about machine learning, the implementation of it, and its realistic shortcomings. And they had this exact example. There is a, a project by Google where basically you show up photo of something and it tries to guess what it is right and so it had all these cats it literally was a, an example of a cat and there were so many where it was like yeah this is a cat this is a cat this is a cat and then one at time it just says that's a cell phone <laughs> and you're like wait what so this is what we're dealing with out on the road just think of i want everybody when they're driving in a city i want you to look around at all of the different things that you know exactly what they are whether it's <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm serious whether it's a door to a house a garbage can garbage in the street, a person, a dog, a dog on a leash, a, two dogs on a leash, three dogs on a leash because somebody's got a dog walking company. Whatever the case may be, <laughs> there are so newspaper things where the, where you take the, the real estate out thing for people that still don't have a computer and still want to look at houses. <laughs> Whatever it is, there's stuff everywhere. It's almost, it is a gargantuan task. And the more I think about it, the more I learn on this stuff, the more I'm just not sure if it's going to be this black and white, okay, now we're doing this type of thing. I think it's really going to be this slow transition. I oh, think yeah. we will get there. I think we will get there. And I have the uh, um, professor Tom Fisher is going to be on the podcast in a few weeks, and he is the uh, director of urban design at the University of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And hes I don't think he's a big fan of cars from what I from the conversation that we had here okay. in the studio, but it's still interesting to, for him to talk. And I think even he thinks it's going to happen a little bit faster than it is. Yeah. He's like, oh yeah, well, we're doing this. We talked to these people and we're talking to these government officials and this is what the city's going to look like. And I think everybody's really, 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 really excited what they want things to be, what they right. want things to look like. But I just don't think everybody realizes how much money it's going to cost and well, all just, the complexity of- The technology is not there yet. Let's go back to Steve Wozniak here. Here's the question. Will it ever be there? Is it possible for a computer to do what you and I do every day, which is take, just think of all the, the petabytes of information we take in in one day of all the things we see, analyze, look at, mm -hmm. make decisions on. There's Split so many things. second decisions. You, and, I mean, a computer can make the decision faster, but the data set that you're choosing from, the, the stuff that's in your brain that you've learned is different than what the computer has right. as choices. So you're choosing A, B, or C. The computer is choosing A, B, or I don't even know what that is. Right. So our ability to, to make choices as we drive around is something we don't even do consciously. Think about um, when just the lang body language of cars, right? You can look at a car and mm -hmm. you can, when I'm merging over, I look at a car and I look behind me and I, I don't even necessarily look at their blinker. I look at their speed. And mm -hmm. I was thinking about this the other day. I look at their speed. I look at what they're doing, where the car is going. I look at where the driver is That's looking. Number one. Yes. You can see what they're doing. You can see all the body language of traffic, which is something that you, you've learned over a course of years and you have expectations of it sure. and you can make choices based on it, but none of them are black and white decisions, which is what a computer is good at is making a yes or no decision right. is it safe yes or no to do x yes or no we can go is it safe to do this and you go well i don't know if it's safe maybe it's safe that guy's doing this this person over here i mean there's just so much more there's gray so area variables. in yeah. what we're doing anyway so finish uh finish this in one 2018 off. steve wozniak said i wanted to do nothing because my computer just went to sleep what we've done is misled <laughs> the public into thinking this car is going to be like a human brain to be able to really figure out new things and say hey Here's something I hadn't seen before, but I know what's going on here, and here's how I should handle it. 
A human can do that. That's what I just said. Right. So uh, in 2018, he said, I wanted to be part of this lead into autonomous driving. He explained on Fast Money Halftime Report last week. I wanted to be part of that crowd, and I kept upgrading my Tesla to one that would have a camera and a radar, and then one that would have eight cameras and a radar, because the first one would never do it. And then I gave up, and I said, it's really not ever going to happen. It's just too complex. Tesla's make so many mistakes. He said it really convinces me that autopilot and auto steering can drive an auto steering car. Driving itself is not going to happen. I think it's man. It's going to have to be this compromise, right? It's got to be this compromise because we're going to have to choose. Are we okay with an artificial intelligence car killing people? That's the first choice we have to make because it's going to happen. They right. are going to make mistakes. It's already happened. Tesla autopilot kills people. Mm. It just does. But do they kill less than humans? Are the choices that they make safer? The only way that this is probably going to work is if either all cars are autonomous or all cars are not. You, you cannot have the mix because the expectations of what a human being is seeing on the road and what they're going to do and the expectations of what an autonomous car are going to do are completely different. And you also have to wonder, in a situation where you have a human driver and you have an autonomous car, mm-hmm. and they're going to do something at the same time, whether it's merge into each other or whatever, who's going to say, I'm more important than you? Basically, who's going to yield? Who is going to yield? Right. So I think what <laughs> the first step in this, I think, is what we're going to see is you're going to see things like, you're going to see a lot of cars like Tesla, which have autopilot. Mm-hmm. And one thing that they do really well is drive on the freeway because right. there's no oncoming traffic. Right. They're able to. You're going exactly are, where I was going to go. All the cars are moving in the same direction. It's very easy to judge. The, tr- the, the, the highway system is the safest and easiest place for you to drive your car. Right. Because there's far less going on. Yep. Right. People are making less decisions. They're just doing boom. They're driving straight. Right. I think that you're going to see freeways be first. Well, I think you'll see in the next few years, basically, you know, the sane lanes or the commuter lanes, the high occupant vehicle lanes. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to see those that are basically just autonomous lanes, right? You can only drive in there in autonomous mode or maybe autonomous mode is only allowed in there. But basically, then it's much more easy for all the vehicles, like you said, if they're all autonomous, they're all maybe communicating to each other. So that's where they are. That might be the first step. But I think at some point you're going to see the loops around the cities are going to be autonomous only. And Mm -hmm. if you don't have an autonomous car, you're just going to have to take a different way. I think that's just because I don't think that they can coexist. I just don't think it's possible because when you have all autonomous cars driving on the freeway, they can all communicate with each other. Right. I mean, they can, um, you know, communicate with traffic. They can figure out what's the you know best way. They can reroute. They can do all these things on their own. And I just don't think humans have a place in that because they're not going to be able to, you know, what's the little message going to come up on your screen? Be like, Hey, all the other cars are doing this. Do you want to do this too? <laughs> you know, it's just, what if the people's like, no, well, F that I'm not going to do that. That's stupid. Which is something I tell ways all the time, which right. I always regret almost every time. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm not going that way. There's no way that that's faster. And almost always is. So we'll see where things go. Steve Waz is a pretty smart dude. And, um, you know, over the last you know, watching that documentary and then listening to him talk about this stuff, you know, it's, might not be as cut and dry as we all think. Right. And I, I I think everybody will enjoy the Tom Fisher interview as well on that topic. All right. So what have we got from Buster Conrad? Buster Conrad. That's right. Let's just jump right into it. He was actually, you know, that Minnesota passed this left lane law, right? So he was actually interviewing a, uh, it was a protest against this. So let's go right over to Buster Conrad. 
Hi, Chris and Jake. Today I'm at the Minnesota State Capitol Building in St. Paul, where a protest is happening of the recently passed Minnesota Legislature Bill SF-620, more commonly known as the Slowpoke Law. This attaches a citation and fine to drivers caught obstructing traffic in the fast lane. A group calling themselves the Mothers and Fathers Expecting Road Safety has banded together to bring attention to the chaos that this bill has unleashed upon Minnesota roads. Looks like there's only about 15 people here now, but I've been assured more protesters will eventually get here at some point. I have Karen Anderson here, who organized today's protest on her mom's group on Facebook. Karen, why do you feel that SF620 needs to go away? Well, obviously, everyone knows that speed kills children. My first concern as a mama bear is to keep my cubs safe, which is why I created the Emfers Group. Braden and Jaden's lives are far more important than whatever you feel the need to hurry off to. Studies show that the left lane, being furthest from people merging onto the freeway, is the safest lane. Why should people who could murder my children by driving recklessly get to hog the safe lane all to themselves? This sounds fascinating, Karen. Where can I read more about these safe driving technique studies? Well, it's on the internet, silly. Just bing it. I'd say Google, but they've censored the truth off of their results page. Aiden, you're nine years old. You know better than to take your pants off in public. He's such a free spirit. Excuse me, I've got to go. Aiden, sweetie! Uh, It's a good thing this is just an audio uplink, gentlemen. There's an angry-looking person who's been glaring at me since I arrived. I'm going to go see what this is all about. Did you really drive here in that SUV? You're as bad as the rest of these people who just have to bring their entire brood in an explorer. I can't even... Well, it is a pretty small Kia, and it's only got a 1.6 liter. It's not even a hybrid? What in the hell are you thinking? You're killing the planet. Excuse me, I I didn't catch your name. Are you counter-protesting this protest? It's Pat Johansson, and unfortunately, no. This is a real, the enemy of my enemy is my friend situation. The rest of you SUV drivers are next. But for now, we need to rein in irresponsibly burning large amounts of planet-killing fossil fuels by speeding. The optimal highway speed for energy-efficient commuting is 45 miles per hour. By holding up traffic, I'm creating a legion of tailgaters that are unwittingly employing hypermiling drafting techniques that increase their fuel efficiency by as much as 25%. The conventional automobile has waged war on the planet since 1885. It's time we fight back with guerrilla tactics. SF-620 has allowed the man to fire penalty shots at people like me who are protecting the planet and it needs to be repealed. Green lives matter. Give them hell, sister. Looks like some more protesters have started to arrive, man. I've got some things I'd like to say. Chet Olson, U.S. Merchant Marine's Chief Warrant Officer, retired. Don't touch my mic, Chief Chet. As one of the more life-experienced members of this protest, I bet you have a wiser insight on the ramifications of this bill being signed into law. You're damn right I do. Who in the hell do you all think you are? Who died and made you king of the road? The sign says minimum speed is 40, and it's my constitutional right to do that minimum in any damn lane that I want to. This stupid law pisses on the graves of our forefathers, wipes his ass with the constitution, and it's a socialist plot to redistribute wealth $100 per fine. 
I'm hearing a lot of criticisms here, but I'd be very interested in hearing what a wise man like yourself has in mind to solve this problem so that everyone can enjoy their motoring experience safely. Solutions? Oh yeah, I've got solutions. For starters, get off my ass and put it back in your pants. Plan ahead. If you gotta go someplace fast, just leave earlier next time. Lack of planning on your part does not constitute an emergency uh, on my part. Hey, someone call an ambulance. I hope they left early enough to give Chet a jump start while it still counts. A lot more protesters have arrived in the last few minutes. Hopefully one of them knows CPR. This is now definitely a complete bunch of MFers. Back to you at the studio. All right. Thanks, Buster. Always. Mr. Conrad. I always that. entertaining. Conrad. Yeah, Conrad. My Conrad. Bad. All right. So we have some listener feedback. Okay. Um, these are via Instagram. I got these today. Uh, I always post too late. I got to start doing these earlier because I never <laughs> give enough people enough time. So Winter Lamaster or LA Master, I'm not sure what it is, says, will 3D home printing technology get good enough to make p- shopping for parts obsolete? So he's talking about car parts. Yeah. Um, no, nope. <laughs> it, uh, in, in some ways, it already has if you're smart enough. I mean, you can make some parts, you can make knobs and switches and stuff sure, like that, like plastic anything, components. Yeah, anything that needs tensile strength is not an option. Right, like control arms, any that kind of I'd stuff. I'd be better off just going out and using my welder to try to do it. Correct, uh, welding some parts together. Um, if you if you're not smart enough, you have to rely on others' designs. So you can go to like these free places that right. everybody's already designed stuff. But it's always hokey stuff like a phone holder or a cup holder adjustment thing or whatever the case may be. Um, you're not making stuff out of steel. You're usually making it out of like a Delrin or nylon or. Sure. I mean, you can do different things. I mean, they do like some rubber and some flexible things and stuff like that. But I don't think it's ever going to be like it was on like Star Trek where you open up something (laughs) and there's like a turkey sitting there because you were able to 3D print a turkey. Yeah. I mean, they do some actually they do some biological 3D printing. I know they do. Um, I think they were doing skin for burn victims. I think I did hear that. Like it's really, really impressive stuff. But guess what? You're not using a biological control arm. I'm sorry. All right. So Jacob Molnar says, what are some driving destinations on your bucket list. We already know what mine are. Yeah, Chris, you have many. I have many um, of which I've talked about, but we haven't talked about yours. Yeah, I guess not. I haven't done California one on the West Coast. I'd like to do that completely, the whole thing, north, south. I'd love to do like the off-road Baja 1000. Oh my God. Okay. Like that's not realistic at all. Well, maybe someday if the podcast keeps going the way it is. That would be sweet. And I'm not going to like be super competitive about it. I would just love to take like a home-built trophy truck or some sort of sand buggy and just do it why don't we just go out to utah and drive a jeep around i'd be game with that too <laughs> sounds a little bit more reasonable more realistic um so jersey 911 says if you had to change the color of your car what color would it be black you'd go from tangerine to black yep no i wouldn't ever paint it black but if i found a black 911 you that's your favorite color for a 911 it's just so clean simple I would never change the color of my car. I know. It's a, it's that a, is your car. Yeah. When I got it, it was black. But when I looked on the, in, I opened the engine lane, I could see the blue yeah. on the on the frame rails or whatever that yeah. is back there. I was like, ooh, that's blue. And I didn't know what blue it was until it's much, It's a pretty much, much rare later. blue. It is. And I was like, oh, that, that's for me. That color yeah, is for, for sure. It's my favorite color. My favorite color is blue. All right. So what would be one of the best first cars? He says it has to be reliable and cheap. This comes from Jeff Zeff.jp. I know the best. This is the best first car for anybody. I've already got the answer. But really, what, what have you got? 
Well, my first car was a Mustang. <laughs> yeah, but that's <laughs> that not was a reliable or cheap. choice. Yeah. What, what else um, do we have? Crown Vic. Old that is car. also my choice. Yeah. <laughs> a Crown Vic from either a cab or probably more than they not. won't break down. They're solid and you just got to get them from the police auction, really, because they've been well maintained. Very they cheap. last forever. They're safe. They're big. You know, they're automatic. They're good for the kid. That's probably a really good choice. Otherwise, maybe a Volkswagen Rabbit. No, that's not cheap or reliable. No, anymore, and you're going to not be safe at all. All right. So for the enthusiast, it's still kind of cool to have the old cop car. You could put a push bar on it and you could, you know, just. Eh. No, you don't eh. like to, to look like an actual cop car anymore. No, oh, I, think I think that's dumb. I love it. I think it's pretty cool. Just think about driving around and everybody all of a sudden is going 60 miles an hour around you. <laughs> that's what would happen to my old cop truck that I had. Oh, so yeah. I'd be driving and it was uh, Minnesota you had a State. Tahoe. Cop Tahoe was a per- per- police pursuit vehicle, the Tahoe PPV. Yeah. It had bigger sway bars, big air conditioning condenser for idling Cop shocks, cop springs. Cop See, shocks, cop springs. And uh, it was lowered a little bit. You and know, it, you quoted Blues Brothers, but you didn't even have it on your list of top movie cars. I haven't done the second part of that yet. You basically said it wasn't going to be on there. Yeah, probably not. All right. That's because I don't like Jim Belushi. I just don't like him. I don't like him. I don't think he's funny. He's not funny. Plus, okay. he's, <laughs> plus he's dead. So, All right. So uh, 993 Andy says, what Porsche events are a must for both of you next year? I hope to make Luft. For me, it's going to be going to rallies. I want to go see people. I want yeah. to drive with them. That's kind of what I'm after. Luft was really fun. It I'd was. like to see what's I've in store like, next year. Uh, I guess uh, Rod Emery's doing like a camping event too. Oh, really? I want to do that. That'd be um, cool. I heard there's maybe a Luft East Coast. I would probably Ooh. go to that versus going to California again. Um, so Jay Wolfie says, can Jake do some more JDM car history? There's a lot of gold in there. Absolutely. And I'm I know, always up for suggestions. I've given you suggestions and you haven't done them yet. I yeah. have one that's really, really good. I'll tell you in a little bit once we're done with the podcast. Okay. I'll refresh Usually I don't find them as interesting and I'll go down some other rabbit hole. No, that's okay. I really that's that's fine. All right, guys, I really appreciate you listening. Please head over to patreon.com slash overcrest. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes, and we will see you guys on Friday. Take care. Oh, 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 oh,